What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi. Maria here. Throughout the series, you'll hear from Angel and myself as we go into some pretty intense details about George's life and, sadly, about her untimely death. Due to the nature of the conversations we're having, all names, both of persons of interest and friends, will be changed or redacted to protect their identities unless they give us permission otherwise. This series contains discussions of extremely sensitive subjects that include violence, sexual assault, mental health, abuse of a minor, racism, classism, negligence, neglect, and of course, murder. This podcast and its contents are not suitable for all listeners. Please use your discretion. And now to the episode. If Georgia Moses had managed to become a teenager she might have ended up in a place like the Children's Village or Juvenile Hall or a court-ordered residential program that tries to change the ways of rebellious adolescents. There are those who will call or email me today to say the solution is for people like George's mom not to have children. In fact, I'll get calls saying everyone ought to knock off getting knocked up because there are just too many children in the world and overpopulation is the root of many of our problems. Normally I'd wrap poetic here. I'd start with something I agonized over for hours, if not days, to create this perfect intro image. But not today. Today we're getting down to brass tacks because we're talking about promises and the people who've made them. And there's really no metaphor that can appropriately convey the importance of a promise to a victim's family. How it builds their hope. How for a second, maybe even a day, their grief is turned into renewed faith and their struggle feels legitimized. Since August of 1997, everyone who's had a hand on George's case has made a promise, whether to themselves or to the public or directly to Angel and her family. They have promised to tell the whole story to see the whole picture for the facts, to leave their bias behind, strap on their badge and their press pass, and to piece together the evidence and take a killer off the street. They promised that when they accepted the job, long before Georgia became a statistic. Long before where Angel is now, still combating a barrage of misinformation and half-assed apologies, still believing with her last ounce of faith that when an agreement is made, it'll be honored. The media, I feel like, has played a super big role in creating this false version of who Georgia was. They didn't use their voices, their platforms to 
finally create this little safe space for Georgia. You know, they just further victimized her. And this has been constant over the years. There was a specific instance where I entrusted the media and they still did the bare minimum. And this this was recent, right? This was in January? Correct, in January. And it what what really stung was I came to them in a in a very, very respectful manner and said, Hey, you know, this wasn't the story that we talked about. I'm not pleased with it. I feel like it really doesn't it doesn't tell my sister's story. It really doesn't even talk about her. And they were adamant on what they were trying to convey and not caring about what they should have conveyed. At the very least, you gave me your word as to say, hey, I understand that you've had all these issues with the media over the years. I, at the very least, want to present a story where it does your sister justice. I understand you have a job. I understand you have a motive. But my sister's not the the time nor place to do that. From the first word you write to the last punctuation, everything in between matters because it's about my sister. And you're choosing to hear what I'm telling you and not listen. You know, like you're going to have enough respect about her and her story and her death and her life to come correct. And if you're not going to come correct, then just don't talk about her anymore. And I understand that there's some level of control that I can have. And so now that I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, I'm not pleased with what they're delivering. It's like, okay, well, we're going to do right by her. We're going to give her this series of stories where we go into detail of who she was and how special she was to you and her friends and the community. And that hasn't happened. Not only has that not happened, the opposite has. Since the last article was put out about Georgia in January, local media has dried up again. And it seems that the biggest complaint that the community had 20 years ago, not enough people talking about a murdered child right in their backyards, is just history repeating itself right before our eyes. The email stopped in April. New articles are nowhere to be found. We even did an interview in early spring for a piece that was supposed to be the first in a series. And, well, did you see it? Because we didn't see it. We understand the 24-hour news cycle. And Sonoma County has a lot to write about with all the scandals going on. So it's not lost on us that a 24-year-old case is going to get backburnered. But it doesn't make it less disappointing. And it doesn't make them any less obliged to the things they said they would do to make up for the damage they've already done. So let's take a trip down memory lane and get specific. Because that damage isn't just about hurting someone's feelings. It altered the way that Georgia's case would be talked about and not talked about amongst the community and law enforcement for years. First, it didn't really seem like anyone was holding their breath for information, nor were they quick to put that information out. A body was discovered on August 22nd. A body. It wasn't until August 26th that the public was first notified of that. By then, a tentative ID had been made. But the first mention of a tentative ID didn't come until August 31st. 
I'm going to be fast with this information because it's worth including, but it's not the meat and potatoes. Okay. From August 31st to September 16th, only five articles mention Georgia from the many publications in the Bay Area, and they all have conflicting information. Body was positively ID'd, then it wasn't. She was found on the 23rd, then the 22nd, then the 23rd again. It also took until the 16th to release information about the last person she was seen with and get a description to the public, which at this point was three weeks and four days after her body was found. Then, the first we see a composite sketch is January 30th. I understand now why we still to this day hear, how did I not know about this? I grew up right there. So right around the end of September is where the subtle and sometimes not so subtle victim blaming starts. In one article, she's referred to as a troubled kid who had minor run-ins with the law. But she didn't. We've confirmed that. Georgia never had a record. From 1997 to now, she's often noted to be a poor black kid from a broken home. Or a girl who grew up too fast and is living a mature lifestyle. She's even been identified as a woman as recently as seven months ago. First off, 12-year-olds aren't women, and they don't have lifestyles. They might have likes and dislikes, but a 12-year-old does not choose their life or the things that had happened within it. To quote an angry write-in to the Argus Courier that I loved so much, because honestly, I couldn't have said it better myself. Quote, although the Press Democrat offered more detail, it certainly offered no more compassion. References to Georgia playing with fire or hanging around the wrong people, doing poorly in school, just smacked of victim-blaming and was devoid of sadness that a child had been taken from us. The ultimate abomination, the final insult to this child's memory, was allowing a convicted child molester to define her as a troublemaker. God save me from the press. (laughs) God save us all, Michelle. God save us all. Because of local papers dating all the way back to the beginning, George's name has become synonymous with the phrase, fell through the cracks. I mean, it's literally written in a dozen articles said by various people when asked about Georgia. Unfortunately, this one just fell through the cracks. Sadly, this little girl fell through the cracks. Unlike Polly, Georgia's situation set her up to fall through the cracks. The cracks, the cracks, the cracks. They said it so often together, you'd think Georgia made those cracks herself. And in creating this fictitious abyss she fell into... The media aided in minimizing culpability to those charged with stepping in but failing to, and truthfully, it minimized responsibility of her killer and thrust it upon herself. All of this laid the foundation for herd detachment and gave the public an excuse to look away. Beyond rewriting her life for whatever reason this happened, viable suspects were getting overlooked because the media got tunnel vision and in turn perpetuated the tunnel vision that some accused the sheriff's department of having. Contributors to her circumstances were not given a second glance at the time because she was being paraded as a girl who could take care of herself and was likely treated as an adult by other adults. These references to her maturity are so casual that even our conversations with law enforcement sometimes need to have a disclaimer inserted that she was in fact a child, not even a teenager yet. As the months went on and news outlets grew quiet, the public soon had no reason to keep asking questions. They weren't being reminded that this case was still unsolved, that a killer was still on their streets. Had the community been more aware of George's case back when it happened, 
more eyes reading the description of the man in the white car, someone may have come forward with information. But instead, there are large gaps between mentions. And even when there are mentions, they're mostly community write-ins, or more commonly, her name being typed alongside other, more famous names. Looking at one example from the Argus Courier in October 2003, an article titled Georgia Moses, the Forgotten 12-Year-Old Murder Victim, it begins with eight lines from the Tom Waits song, an immediate leap to Polly Class, and then continues to juxtapose the two girls' tragic deaths for an entire half-page article, never once giving the forgotten 12-year-old murder victim the reader's whole attention. Some people might think we're being unreasonable. And okay, go on with yourself, but don't tell us that we should be grateful for what was being done. Because that's really the thing, isn't it? What was being done wasn't enough. And that's not just conjecture or the perception of an angry mob. We know more could have been done, because it had been done just a few years before, by police and by every news outlet from across the country. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and say this because I've made it kind of my standard in whenever I do bring up my sister's case, I do not compare it to another case. And that case is the murder of Polly Class. I've read her story. And as a parent, that's how it should have been done. The fight that her family had to get justice. That's how every case should be handled. And when the media portrays the two cases, they try and put race in there. They try and say, oh, well, you know, the world cared about this one and not this one. And the reason why I don't mention the two cases together is because I don't want to take away from Polly Class or her family or the attention that she received because she is due that attention. Everything that her family fought for, they deserve. They deserve to have the world know her name because they lost their baby. So I can't be upset and I'm not going to be upset that her case received more attention than mine. That's how it's supposed to be. I'm upset because the media and the police department failed to meet a standard. They barely knew my sister. A simple interview with some of her friends, her close friends, they would have learned so much about her. I've encountered friends in the past few months and they've shed so much light on things that I kind of already knew. They brought to light some new things. You know, and the fact that they couldn't even get my sister's name correct, that just shows you how much they did not care, how much they did not put into getting my sister the justice she deserves. Looking back, it's obvious that the agenda is being pushed, often pitting Georgia's tragedy against the equally tragic loss of polyclass. We can't stress this enough. It's not a competition, and it's not black versus white. Both girls deserve the outcry that Polly received. They both deserve the phone banks, the marches, the celebrity endorsements, the rage, the anger. They both deserve the police and the public to know their names and to care equally. That was the standard that should have been met. Unfortunately, it wasn't for Georgia. And nothing makes that sentiment more true than the infamous article 
that brought Angel's relationship with the media to its breaking point. When Angel first read me the story we're about to address, I was shocked, as were many of the people who heard the anger in her voice as she read it into the camera. At this point, she'd already become very vocal about how the media had let her sister down and started to be extremely selective with who she would and would not work with. And then she came across this, which out of everything we've ever read about Georgia, is by far the worst. So when I posted the article, honestly, it was just like a, for myself, it was necessary because I felt like people didn't really understand my frustration. I keep saying the media, the media, the media, they keep failing my sister. I can say it a million times, but unless you see it, then you're not going to understand. So I was like, okay, you know, I could start looking up articles and just reading them. And I guess it was meant to find this one because I had never seen this article before. I started reading it and my blood started boiling. The column was published in the Press Democrat in 2006. It was titled, A Reminder to Remember Georgia Moses, written by columnist Chris Corsi. I'll come back to him and who he is and why he matters specifically in a minute. If you follow our social media, you'll be familiar with this article and our feelings about it. But for those who don't, let me just say it's extremely triggering. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll include a link to the article in our show notes. First, he starts by talking about how Georgia had been in the news lately because of a man that had been suspected of being in possession of child pornography, and he had a weird interest in murdered girls. Then he goes on to talk about Leah Raleigh and the Children's Village, a home for foster children dedicated to Georgia. But here's where it gets truly awful. He asks the reader if Georgia had been a rich white girl from Rinkin Valley instead of a poor black girl from Roseland, would she have been found sooner? I'm sure that's a question a lot of people asked, but it's the follow-up that really... (sighs) Quote, Skin color and address didn't determine her fate. Her family situation did. Georgia was neither a good kid nor a bad kid. She was just 12 years old, trying to find out what kind of adolescent she was going to be. He goes on to speculate about the life Georgia might have had, had she lived and then criticized her family. It's the quoted part that Angel read at the top of the episode. After saying how people like Ida should stop having children, he continues with, but we don't live in a country that legislates the size of families, and people like George's mother aren't likely to respond to such things as tax incentives or family planning. So we're going to have kids among us whose parents are too debilitated or distracted by their own problems to take care of their own children. We might be justified to respond, those children aren't my responsibility, but we wouldn't be right. When the family breaks down, the community is left with a choice. Take on the responsibility of guiding the child through the storm of adolescence, or be prepared to see more roadside shrines like the one next to the 101 in Petaluma. It's a monument to indifference, end quote. So let's break this down, because in this column, this story, it was meant to be about remembering Georgia, a beautiful 12-year-old lost to a monster. But he chastises her for being a victim of circumstance, 
wonders out loud if she would have lived, would she end up in jail? He comes after communities of color, low-income families, people with mental health problems, and then rounds it all out by saying that her memorial, which was made in her honor, is a monument to the indifference of a community because Georgia wasn't a white girl from Rinkin Valley. This grown man chose to speak about Georgia's life like it was worth losing because of what obviously awaited her. So Angel rightfully called him out. If you haven't seen Angel's YouTube video about the situation, definitely watch it. I included a link in the show notes. So I wish I could say this is where the Chris Corsi thing stops. But he caught wind of that video and called Angel on her private number, which she did not give to him. So I decided to make the video. And, you know, I posted it the next day, which was Sunday of all days. He calls me and of course it was like a Sonoma County number. So I'm like, who is calling me on a Sunday? Like, cause I don't, you know, I don't know too many people that as far as us calling each other from that area. And so I'm getting my smoothie, you know, trying to be healthy. And uh, I'm like, hello. He's like, hi, is this, is this Angel Turner, Georgia Moses' sister? Like, uh, who's calling? This is Chris Corsi, you know, the one that you did the, the video on. And I was like, wait a minute. How'd you get my number? Because it went from, like, me, who's trying to get in touch with me, to a, why the heck are you calling my private cell phone number on a Sunday afternoon to talk to me about a video that I just did that's calling you out for some crap that you wrote? He's like, oh, well, you know, one of my friends, they, they, I believe it was Facebook. They, they saw where, um, they saw your number on Facebook. And I was like, no, they didn't. Cause my number's Mm-mm. not on Facebook. And he's like, oh, it was, it was something like that. Nope. I was like, got it. So you pulling my stuff up so you can have this BS apology that you're about to do. Okay. Very subtly letting you know that he can find your information and he doesn't need help. And then you're calling me on a, like, first of all, dude, I don't know you and I don't care to know you. And you're choosing my rest day where I'm supposed to be with my family, enjoying life, to call me and clean your mess up. And so he's like, oh, are you available right now? I said, no, I'm out with my family. I'll call you later. Again, my blood starts to boil. I say, you know, at the very least, I want to hear what this person has to say. So I call him back a little bit later when I have time that I have to take away from my family. And he goes on to say that he was emailed the story or the the video. And he was like, I'm not going to lie. When I saw you reading those words that I wrote, I cringed. I was like, how do you think I felt? Right. He went on to try and apologize. He said he couldn't understand what I went through or what my family went through. They were raised in a different social economic class. So he doesn't know the struggles that I had. But he's had some struggles and his children have had some struggles. And I said, excuse me, like not to be 
like, I'm, I'm, I feel sorry for you, but why are you calling my phone in regards to an article that you wrote about my murdered 12-year-old sister to tell me about the struggles that she went through in life? Like, how does this conversation even make sense right now? He's like, no, 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 I, I, I can't understand what you went through. But, you know, I, I basically I'm just saying I'm sorry. I mean, you should have been sorry when you thought about putting that story together. If there was never a video made, would you be sorry? You did a public embarrassment to my family. Not only did you talk about my mom and how, you know, she should have accepted certain things and the type of people like my mom, but you also talked about my sister. You know, I'm not stupid. You're cleaning up your mess and you're a political figure in your county. You have a lot of common sense and you're used to doing things a certain way that requires the use of power. So you can't sit up here and try and convince me that your reasoning for calling me now is sincere. If you wanted to apologize, you would have taken your your little platform. You would have publicly said something. Oh yeah, no, it was a public disgrace. It was a public disgrace. It needed to be a public apology, period. Exactly, exactly. And then you're trying to trying to throw in the little sympathy cards by throwing in your family story. Well, and drawing the comparisons between the two, because when I, when you told me that, all I could think was when he said, you know, I, I know how you feel. All I could think was, oh, really? Your 12 year old sister was murdered when you were seven. And then the media absolutely destroyed her legacy. And then the police sat on their thumbs for years until someone stepped in and was like, okay, I need to be able to try to solve this. And then when that didn't work, they sat on their thumbs for another dec two decades that you know exactly how that feels it just ugh. look not just that he thought that the image portrayed by my mom and the 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 life that we lived made him know the person that I was and he could just hey you know I'm, I'm calling you and this is what it was and it's like to call me on my personal number that you somehow found on a Sunday afternoon from your personal line and throw everything at me except sincerity and truth. Mm -hmm. and, and the, and, and masking it as this, you know, extension of an apology when really there was no, it was very thinly veiled that this was an extension of, I know exactly how to get a hold of you. And I don't want you saying my name publicly anymore. So here's, an apology that will hopefully, you know, scratch that itch for you. All it did was rip a Band-Aid. I'm very, very, very defensive when it comes to my sister because so many people have mishandled her life and her death. And, and I would not even known who he was. Like, you know, I don't think about other people writing articles. Like you work for the Press Democrat. So you're, you're a reporter. That's who you are. And to know that this person wasn't just a writer, but went on to represent the people and say that they cared for the people, it was just like even more distasteful. Sidebar, 
Something really strange happened shortly after this video was released. Angel was contacted through Facebook by someone wanting to donate money on behalf of some commission in Sonoma County. The whole thing was pushy to say the least and would have been totally welcome if it wasn't so truly bizarre. This Friday evening, I get this message and somebody reaches out to say, oh, we would like to donate some money to the reward fund for Georgia. I'm like, okay, well, you know, these are the avenues I have available right now. Honestly, I wasn't even like in the mindset to even be talking about because there was just been so much going on, you know, with George's case and life and just being human. And so they message back and they're like, oh, well, because we're a government entity, we can only donate to like a nonprofit or if you have somebody overseeing you that is a nonprofit. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, I plan on starting one, but I haven't, it's not established yet. So you want to reach back in like six months or a year, just keep us in your prayers, whatever. So they started sending me all these entities that could oversee. Then they try and like encourage how to kind of fast track the nonprofit. And so now I'm feeling pressured because this is like within like a 10 minute period. And I'm like, okay, look, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but I'm not going to just rush and stamp something on a nonprofit in my sister's name to get some money from you. If that's the case, then go bless somebody else. They're like, oh, well, you know, it's just, we only have a couple of weeks to finalize it. And I really feel like your sister's uh, cause will be a great place to put the money. And I said, well, I'll see what I can do, but I'm not making any promise. Like, I understand you're trying to help, but at the same time, like I'm feeling super pressured and I don't like that. It already felt like there was something else to it. It was just like, why now? And so I'm Googling, like, who is this person? Who is this entity? And wouldn't you know, they work with Chris Corsi. Whether or not this person's connection with Chris Corsi's office had anything to do with their offer remains unknown. And even though we raise our eyebrows at that particular situation, this may well have been genuine. We're just on the fence about that. After Angel's video made its rounds, the Press Democrats' new editor-in-chief picked up on it, and they too reached out and had a conversation with us. A conversation we thought was going to turn something so bad into something so good. What's so nauseating about it is after that article in January, I told myself and I told that reporter that I'm not working with them anymore because I know I did not owe them anything. And the little bit of trust that I did decide to extend to them, they crapped on. So when the top chiefs of the press Democrat wanted to have a sit down and talk, I was like, oh, okay, maybe some people really do care, you know, because the top people aren't going to sit down with you unless they care or they're trying to pretend to care. I was hopeful that they really did care. Oh, yeah. We sat down and they even talked about how sickening it was listening to the to the video. And I'm like, yeah, this was your granted. They weren't there at the time it was written. But unfortunately, when you take ownership of something, you take everything that came along with it, you know, and they were very convincing in those promises you know, more stories and, you know, really highlighting who she was and um, 
you know, addressing the article that Chris Corsi wrote to the extent of saying, we don't have any alliance to him, so we don't owe him anything. Oh, yeah. We don't owe him shit. And it's like, that's a bold statement to make. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And I was like, okay, that right there lets me know that you guys are about it. Where you understand right is right and wrong is wrong. It doesn't matter who you are. And so we sat. And we waited and we waited. And that was what, March, April? And these same promises were not just made by the press Democrat. They just happened to be the ones who made the most. They just happened to be the ones who really sat down with us and were like, oh my gosh, we're going to, you know, don't you worry. Everything's going to be better. And then absolutely nothing happened. But the Bohemian, the Courier, every random little local news, every, every, you know, all of them. So when when do promises mean something like like at at, at what point are promises going to mean something i will say this though there are a few who made promises to you that came through and i want to acknowledge them for sure i want to acknowledge dateline i want to acknowledge the fall line i mean they i cannot say enough good about brooke and laura just amazing um and even even lord and arts yeah oh yeah ba- voices for justice uh, ba- pretty much any broadcast you know that that you've been a part of we were so selective about a- allowing that to happen that those people took that responsibility on and they took it so seriously and they really delivered and they cared. And that's the thing is they didn't deliver so that they could tailor the story to their audience. They delivered so they could tailor the story to Georgia. Oh, absolutely. If you can't tell the story of somebody who was murdered unbiased, then you really shouldn't tell the story at all. Because you can't change that. Those details aren't compromisable. The facts are the facts. Somebody murdered somebody and somebody is not accountable for that. I get everybody has an audience, but if you start focusing on your audience more than you focus on the story of the victim and and the families affected and the loved ones affected by that, then you're already going into it wrong because you're going to start shifting the narrative to appease the people 
that you're trying to appease and you can't do you, certain things you just can't play with. All of this kind of brings us back to the point of this whole episode, how the press in general, but especially local news, has the ability to skew public perception and either help or hinder progress of an investigation on behalf of a victim. And all the proof we needed of that was the January press release from the sheriff's department. Oh, and I love that the, like, while, you know, while we're talking about press and press releases and stuff, it took Dateline, it took Andrea reaching out to the sheriff's department for them to release that PR statement, that, you know, the press release that, again, had misinformation, but it took Dateline contacting them. They didn't, they didn't put out the press release when we had the vigil. They didn't put out the press release when we had the birthday. When they had the detective assigned, when I, you know. Right. They didn't do any of that. They waited until a national news outlet reached out to them for comment. And then all of a sudden, their media people scrambled to throw something together. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, my God, when are you, when, when, when is it going to matter more to you? to solve this case, to make amends to this family than it is to save face. As Angel pointed out to me, a detective had been assigned to her case in September of 2020. That meant there was at least activity happening. There was a vigil. There was a birthday walk. There had been social media buzz. Angel even flew to California twice, and the sheriff's department knew she'd been there. But it wasn't until NBC reached out for comment that they decided it was time to put that flyer out again. Because the press has the power to make things happen. And the larger the audience, the faster they do. We understand that we need these relationships. Without the media, there's no stage. Without the sheriff's department, there's no day in court. So Angel and I have to do the dance. I understand that at this very moment in time, there is a certain level of burden that comes to the family and to the people that care. Because if we weren't here pushing how we were pushing today, the case would still be where it was a year ago, 23 years ago. You know, it it's taken long days, long nights from so many people to be here and say, this is what this truth is. This is what this fact is. This is who Georgia was, not what the however many articles written poorly, that that's not who she was. This is her truth. And this is why it matters to have a platform where we can speak on it however long, for however long, without being edited, without an agenda that is outside of solving my sister's murder and saying who she was and her truth. So for our audience, you should know, every article written, every like, every share, everyone listening right now is tugging on a loose thread and the cloak that George's killer is hiding under is getting smaller. And above all else, that's what we want. So when we find all of the cracks, you know, the ones George has slipped through, we shine a light on them.
Before we go, I want to speak directly to Mr. Corsi. You see, he's gone on to become a pillar of Sonoma County. He was the mayor of Santa Rosa at one point, and he's currently county supervisor. And from what we hear, he has the intention of running for Senate someday. Good for him. So, Mr. Corsi, while we wish you the best in your endeavors, the promise you made of making this right did not fall on deaf ears, and we'd like you to keep it. We invited you months ago, and we're inviting you again to speak with us, with angels specifically. Let's talk about the real ways that we can make change moving forward. No more closed-door promises of scratching the right backs and rubbing the right elbows to gain traction, because that hasn't happened and we didn't really expect it to. But let's work for real, tangible change that would help out those communities and those children, for which you once stood at a memorial on the side of a road and felt indifferent. The thing about this story is that when you think you've got a hold on where it's headed, another layer comes undone and suddenly you're spinning in a new direction or an old one with new information. When I first started working with Angel, I really thought this was going to be a pretty straightforward case of good old-fashioned racism. From the reporting to the police work, all of it was spun in such a way that was helping a murderer stay in the shadows, cloaked by story after story of victim blaming and attention redirects. From the outside looking in, that really was all it seemed to be. This was a young black girl by who all accounts had it bad. And if I could read it that way, knowing that that was just a tiny sliver of who she was, then so could the police. And the justice system just wasn't built to accommodate cases like George's. Obviously, I was an outsider looking in at the time. And standing in that space, it was very easy to project my own insecurities on what I believed was a race thing. That's not to say that in a few aspects, George's race wasn't a factor, but I see the onion now, and Angel's working tirelessly to ensure that every layer is accounted for, even the ones you'd never expect. Over the years, a lot of people have pointed to various different, you know, quote-unquote suspects or people of interest, and the most prominent ones are of these famous names and serial killers and people who like really inserted themselves into George's story or someone has inserted them into George's story, like John Mark Carr. Like that's an example of that where, I mean, that guy was a creeper on his own, but how do you, what, like, what do you think of all of these potential ties? It's super crazy to have one person that's, amongst so many bad people as potential suspects is just it blows my mind especially considering I always thought Sonoma County was like a little you know small tucked away area now to have like multiple potential suspects that people over the years felt like were connected or possibly connected it's it's really it's a weird feeling, you know, like, well, this could be the person. And then it's like, man, like, but how is it all these 
murderers were amongst one person or could have potentially crossed paths with one person. You know, like, how safe are we really when you think about it like that? Good question. Statistically speaking, we'll cross paths with around 36 killers in an 80-year lifespan. But that's just a numbers game. The man I mentioned in the clip, John Mark Carr, he comes up a lot. His name was in the news pretty consistently in the early 2000s because at one point he was being investigated in connection with George's murder. Now he pops up on web sleuths. He got mentioned on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit. A lot of people believed he could possibly be connected with George's case because of an offhand confession he made about being the person responsible for the death of JonBenet Ramsey. Sidebar, he didn't kill JonBenet Ramsey. His weird fixation with murdered children, including Polyclass and Georgia, was what put him on police radar to begin with. In 2000, he moved to Petaluma with his family and began working as a substitute teacher there. He befriended a woman who is connected with someone whose name does not deserve to be said, but it was the reason that John Mark Carr was interested in her in the first place. So I suppose if you look it up on your own, I would understand. Eventually, she became his confidant, and he got a little too comfortable and expressed to her his interest in dead girls. She later recorded conversations with him which prompted a search of Carr's house and the subsequent seizing of a computer that was suspected of having child porn on it. Fun fact, Carr's case was dropped because the sheriff's department lost the computer. You know, the evidence needed to get a conviction. At any rate, Carr's not our guy. He was found to be elsewhere at the time of George's death, but for a minute there, he did look good for it. And the coincidences are just too creepy to not be noted. I mean, because some of them are bogus, but like some of them, it it makes you like even even like well, for me, the biggest one was Sam Little. He came up obviously on the radar last, actually a little bit before last year when he really you know got into the news. It's like, oh, he looks like the sketch. Like, and then you look at the timeline, and when you really start to dig into stuff, it really makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up to say like, oh my goodness what if this could have been? And so I literally went through all the sketches that they had out multiple times, really trying to find like fine tuned evidence that could have potentially linked him, even down to him having a white car. You know, it was just like, how close do you get without being it? It's like, there's this radar and everyone is like super close to that red dot, but they're not on the red dot for my sister's name to be amongst people like Sam Little and John Mark Carr. Like, it's like, Oh my goodness. And even what's really crazy about John Mark Carr, somebody reached out on Twitter who supposedly was working the case on behalf of some people. And he mentioned my family living in one of his family's rental properties in Georgia. And at this time, no one really knew that I lived in Georgia. So I was just like, that's so freaking creepy. Wait, what? John, John Mark Carr said that? Yeah. No. So apparently someone that was working on behalf of the John Bonet Ramsey family, mm-hmm. an advocate, so to speak, they had questioned John Mark Carr and he mentioned my family and said that me and my family lived in one of his, 
his parents' rental houses in Georgia. Whoa, what? Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. And so I like literally did a whole background check and tried to figure out like the time frame. And obviously he, his family did live in Georgia and some of the areas were like within 30, 40 minute range. But I'm like, I know where I lived. I know where my mom lived. And I don't know if potentially my aunt could have lived somewhere while she was living in Georgia at some time. So it's just, again, those creepy closeness of details that are like, I can't dispute it 100%. And this random person who doesn't know me, like, how would you have known that I lived in Georgia? Yeah. Especially because you at that point had not come out publicly as you know, what you're, you know, as the little sister that's fighting for justice, like there's no, like, well, I was out, but my story wasn't out. Like how I am now, where it's like, okay, you can probably know specific details about me. Like it wasn't, it was like the things she said, I felt were very, very more specific to her knowing enough about my family to know that, you know, she probably did have a conversation with him and he probably did bring up my sister, which is how he even got connected to my sister's case to begin with, you know? So it's like, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to say that more than one potential famous serial killer, killer, suspected killer could be, could have any ties to Georgia and, or her murder. You guys ready for a conspiracy theory? Great. Because here comes Edward Wayne Edwards. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. People keep s- suggesting really viable... I mean, like I said, some of them are bogus. Like the Edward Wayne Edwards one. Like th- the person who's trying to piece Edward Wayne Edwards to to Petaluma has like has tied this guy to Jamine Ramsey. Has tied him to the Zodiac Killer. Has tied him to the Smiley Face Killer. He's tied him to Timothy McVeigh. If if Edwards, if Edward Wayne Edwards was really as talented as as like the conspiracy theorists think he is um first of all this guy would be like 192 years old with all the you know experiences he's had in his lifetime but also um 
you know, that would be excessive for a guy of his age. Like, insanely excessive for a guy of his age. Because around around the time that Georgia passed, he would have been 64 years old. And I'm pretty sure he was living in Wisconsin at the time. So for it to be, you know, this, like, I'm I'm looking at it right now and it says, Edward Wayne Edwards, 1997, August 13th, Edwards kids kidnaps 12-year-old Georgia Moses, an impoverished black female from the same county as Polly Class. Okay, but that's not accurate because, as we know, he was in the Midwest at the time. And then it's like, what, what, and from, like, I feel like, you know, you definitely have those people that kind of run with a little detail and and try and make it into something it's not sure but it's like what bit of evidence makes you yeah what what drew that conclusion right like what makes you really believe that this is big enough for you to say that this person murdered someone else you know when i when i even think about somebody doing something I have to have a lot of evidence to even suspect that being a possibility because I feel like to say someone murdered someone like that's a that's a really really big accusation and you know like with the the John Mark Carr and the Sam Little like there was a lot of details that were just like man like even how Sam Little's victims were found like those are very very similar details you know um but for Edward Wayne Edwards it's like what is your detail like what is your nail in the coffin that makes you get online and say this is what you think (laughs) right and not just that I'm gonna write a whole article about it like (laughs) what and he's and that's the thing is that that's not the only one either that that's just like a little blogger or whatever but there was like some other guy that I was reading about that took that and ran with it and was like feasibly he could have gotten on an airplane and gone from ohio to california and then back to wisconsin and no one really would have known it's like i'm pretty sure those records are are traceable like if he got on an airplane that's traceable information (laughs) you know yeah definitely like you would think and and this is me extending some grace to the police but you would think certain things would automatically get on, be on their radar you know so like if you apprehend these people you would think they would go back through their timeline and say hmm okay yay or nay like this is more plausible versus this you know and just from what we've kind of looked at it's like mm, this one's a real big stretch like you shouldn't even like you shouldn't even say this is a possibility because it's really like nothing that's connecting it outside of this person was a murderer, you know? I mean, good for that guy for managing to find every single open case around the U S and come up with an entire backstory in order for Edward Wayne Edwards to be able to commit those horrible crimes. So before we open what is truly a horrifying surprise behind door number three, let's talk about something equally as horrible. Sam Little. We've all but ruled him out. Thanks to our friends at the Fall Line and their unbelievably thorough investigation into Sam Little, we can almost certainly say he's not the man from the sketch. 
For those of you that don't know who Sam Little is, I highly recommend listening to The Fall Line Season 7. Brooke and Laura do not mess around. They know his movements like a uniquely morbid roadmap, which is part of why we can kind of say he's not responsible in this case. He is, however, responsible for nearly a hundred other cases. Sam Little is easily the most prolific serial killer in United States history. He confessed to the murders of 93 women throughout the U.S., and not only did he get away with his crimes for 35 years, but he remembered each and every one of their faces. So much so that he sketched as many as he could before his death in December 2020. So now we're at long-haul truck driver Wayne Adam Ford. A serial killer from Petaluma who hated women, specifically sex workers, and probably definitely himself. Because of his proximity to Georgia's hometown and the place where her body was discovered, he was heavily considered. That one, I know that the police looked into that and they looked into it pretty hard. They ran with that one pretty good and found no viable connection. Um, But, I mean, at the time, he walked into the Humboldt Police Department with a woman's breast in his pocket and and admitted to multiple murderers of uh, murders of sex workers and and uh women of opportunity from northern california to nevada and he even um admitted to one in santa rosa and admit well, uh, sorry, an incident in Santa Rosa, not a murder. It was a sexual assault. He admitted to a sexual assault in Santa Rosa, and there is an unsolved connection to one in Petaluma as well that they believe he was responsible for, but he had not taken credit for. And it, that was right around 1997. So it stands to reason why that would make sense. Why people would think that he may have had something to do with this. Mm-hmm. And then, right? Yeah, I mean that that makes sense that that that, that's a likely you know suspicion and you know like i mean you're in the freaking same county that she was found around the same time that that makes sense i get it but at the same time like i feel like people just they just want a reason to say that they came up with a theory so it's like oh what's something that could be a possibility and it's like take into account that, you know, anything you put out is read by people, including the family. And, you know, at the same, at on one token, there's like a little bit of hope because it's like, oh, well, maybe this is a possibility. They are presenting, you know, new perspectives. And then on the other side, it's super, super draining because you have to vet this information and be like, what the hell are they talking about? Like, this has no relevance to anything. And if they had any type of, understanding of that time who my sister encountered and how our lives are set up they will understand like this doesn't make any sense that's a really good point that you brought up that that something that a lot of people don't consider when they put things out or when they comment or when they do stuff uh you know in their blog or whatever or they're coming out with these conspiracy theories is that it is a drain on the family and it is a drain on resources 
because if enough people say, hey, this might have happened, you should look into this, the police are going to look into that. And then that steers resources away from a viable option, you know, or from whatever they're already looking at. And then for you, you have to read that crap. And I can't even put myself in that position to understand how draining that must be yeah and then you add you know you have those uh which i i appreciate people that try and help solve these cases because you know sometimes like i said people bring different perspectives but there's a time and a place for everything and do your research it's 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 unfortunate for me to see my sister and then i see all these names of bad people that are now associated with her and I have really no clue as to if they should be or if they shouldn't be I can say hey this could be an option this probably isn't an option but at the end of it I really don't know I don't know what information lies within the the desk of the police that have my sister's case and that is a really, really tough thing to come to grips with because there's all these theories and it's like, I can confidently say that maybe one or two of these theories are completely bogus, but for all the other ones, those are just other potential options as to what the reality of my sister's murder was. That's a really, that's another really good point that you made is that, you know, we don't know because at the end of the day, we are civilians. And the officer that we're working with, that's, or I say we're working with, the officer that has George's case right now, um, you know, he's gracious enough to share what information he can without compromising any details and without compromising the legitimacy of a case should it go to trial. Um but what we've been able to dig up on our own it's it's hard to have conversations with law enforcement knowing that they know more than what they can let on with us because you know if we give them somebody we give them a name or we give them information or we say hey this evidence, we came across this evidence, here it is. Do you already have this information? Are we just bombarding you with crap that you don't need? And then he just flat out can't answer. And that makes what we're, what we're doing, specifically what you're doing, so much harder because there's so many avenues that you don't have to go down if there was just a simple mm -hmm. sharing of information. And that's like obviously we and we understand obviously we understand and and for me this this was one of my biggest like heartaches is you know when you come across a story and they'll be like oh you know these people are suspects these people were cleared like a simple that a simple saying that these people were cleared is is a sign of relief you know like hey okay i don't have to keep worrying about this or you know, no, no one's been cleared. Then, okay, well, I'll just keep on. But to have, like, nothing, you know, 
It's a strange feeling being so close to the investigation, but still being so, so far away. And that's me. I'm like five times removed. So for Angel, the position she's in is nearly impossible to cope with. That I think is why the episode yesterday was so important to her. It feels like starving. But starving in front of a locked fridge. You can't see anything in there, but you have faith that there's good food inside. You believe wholeheartedly that someone is going to jimmy the doors open. And in the meantime, you wait. And it hurts. It hurts everywhere. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, I know Eddie Pope was cleared. Um, I do know that. So one out of a potential like 30 possibilities, like you can't clear anyone else. Do we know why he was cleared? I actually didn't know that he was officially cleared. I knew that they weren't necessarily interested in him anymore. Right. I want to say, and this is me trying to go back to the conversation, but um, his he had an alibi. That's what it was. Um. Yeah, and Which, you, and you never thought it was him, right? I didn't. I just, of course, you never know what anyone's capable of. But I just, I just never felt that he was the person responsible. And was there was there any particular reason why you didn't feel that? Like, just, I mean, given his history and how he treated both you and your sister, immediately my brain went straight there, and we got an anonymous tip that I feel kind of comfortable saying now because it's irrelevant, but like we got an anonymous tip of somebody claiming that they were present when Eddie Pope's relative of some kind said he did it. Well, um, I don't know anything about him or his relatives. I really don't know anything about him. Um, I have a little bit of information just about like who he hung out with supposedly, but I just, it's just one of those things you just can't explain. Like I just never felt that what happened to my sister was at his hands. And honestly, you know, my sister, like she was a fighter, like she really, and I I really think it's just a family thing. Like we all just fight, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) but (laughs) <laughs> I I don't see her being in a scenario with Eddie knowing how she felt about him that would have put her in that position. 
You know, I feel like Mm -hmm. how my sister was murdered, that it really had to have been somebody that she knew to have been comfortable with where that could have happened. You know, like she didn't care to be around it. Like if my sister wasn't living with us, there's no way she would have been interacting with Eddie in a manner to where he would have been able to just do what happened to her. Like that's, that's just how I feel in, in conjunction with, I just don't see him spending his time murdering my sister. Like I just, it just doesn't line up to me, which I could be wrong, but I just, it just doesn't seem like that was his, his wrongdoing. Like he's done a lot of stuff. And I just don't feel like murder was one of those things. I mean, that's fair. And plus, you know, he's been cleared. So obviously your instinct was right. So um, it's just, I mean, it's interesting to hear your perspective on it because that wouldn't be my takeaway. If I were in that situation, that wouldn't have been my takeaway. So I I am very um, surprised, but also very, I guess, fascinated by your stance on that you know it's crazy because back like when it happened and up to like a very long time probably maybe up to like the last five years maybe you know I had like no idea who it was I figured it would have been a stranger you know just that was kind of where I felt on it you know something happened and a counter happened and that's what happened. But now over time, I really, really, really feel like it was somebody she knew. Like I just, and, and, and a big portion of that comes down to one, my sister did not just hang around with anybody, you know, like she was very, very, um, concerned about who she hung out with. And 99% of the time she was hanging out with people that she knew. And then, like I said, my sister, she was a fighter. You know, there's stories of her play fighting with people. And they're like, oh, my gosh, like she was just so strong. I'm like, yeah, my whole family is strong. That's just how we're built, you know. So I don't see her being strangled without going down with the fight unless it was somebody that she knew and something happened that she wasn't expecting to happen, you know, like. Like, I just, I just don't see it. I don't see it at all. No, and somebody that she knew is a really key thing there because I've read a lot of articles. I mean, gosh, I've just been combing through all of the media coverage for the last few months. And um, I've come across multiple statements by multiple different law enforcement over the years that, you know, firmly believe this is someone she knew and that's the you know there's articles all over the place with that quote this is somebody she knew um and we've always believed that as well just given everything about her and her personality and like you said she wouldn't just go with somebody this had to be something completely unexpected there's always been speculation about ida's live-in boyfriend 56 year old eddie pope The first round of Tunnel Vision was all about Eddie Pope, both with law enforcement and the court of public opinion. 
You have to admit that he's a convenient choice. Convicted child molester living right in the next room. He often fought with Georgia. He was inappropriate with her. Why wouldn't it make sense that he would be the one to do it? I mean, that's what I thought. That's what most people thought. But surprisingly, Angel doesn't agree, and she never has. It's widely accepted that whoever did this to her was someone she knew. And going back over all this, she didn't know John Mark Carr, or Edward Wayne Edwards, or Wayne Adam Ford. Eddie had an alibi, and it wasn't Sam Little. So what about the guy in the sketch? So you had said that you had like a recall memory of somebody walking up to you guys, talking to you guys, you hand you know, Georgia handed him her pager and and you remember being happy to see this guy. So obviously it's somebody you knew. So obviously it's somebody that Georgia clearly was super familiar with. Do you have any recollection of what he might have looked like? I just know he was big and tall. Because there was like this tree that was, I guess, a good 10, 15 feet from us. And he had passed that tree. And so I guess once he passed it, he kind of had that, you know, comparison of tree to person where it really makes the person stand out. And so as he was passing the tree, I think that's when I started to recognize him. And I just remember being all like, like waving crazy, like little kids do. We came close to each other and I remember like he was big and he did have on a white shirt I remember that because it was nighttime and there was obviously the street light but he was just like this big person to me I was looking up at him and Georgia you know she told me to go up and then I kind of was standing there and she's like was like go like you know she used her hand to kind of motion forward and I remember looking back and him like hovering over Georgia because that's how big he was and it wasn't like he was like big and like you know just obese he was like you know like muscle built you know so she hands him the pager and then they kind of you know I guess said a few words and then she kind of smiled and walked off and then we just continued walking I just remember that moment was so it was so like genuine so obviously I did know him because I wasn't even which I didn't know this but I was shy so I didn't just randomly you know just say hey to everybody so if I waved to him and was excited that means I did know him and that place where we stopped was like literally around the corner from where we lived and literally like not even a two-minute walk from that gas station So I don't know who lived over there that we knew. I have no idea. I just know it was a person. Like, I don't have any details of a face, of a name. I even went back to that place um, when I went to California in January and was, like, hoping I could just remember more. And it's, it's the same exact memory. And I think the only reason why it stood out to me was because... That was the last day that I saw Georgia. I don't even remember what we were going to do. I just remember we were walking back from the direction of the gas station, like that area. And then we went back home. So no idea. You said that 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 gas station was very, very close and you don't know who lived around there. Do you think like if uh, so if the friend that walked her there 
she was familiar with she was familiar at least with the area she was familiar with the neighbors etc because she lived right over there do you think she might know who that person was that that saw you guys i don't know there's a possibility there's a strong possibility because that like i said that was the last night that i saw georgia which would have been the last night that she was alive and you know like it's georgia didn't just randomly hang out with this person and this person and just like most of the people she hung out with were in the same circle unless you know there was like the friends she was with that night lived near us so she was a newer friend but she was still a consistent friend that still knew some of her other friends you know this person if if we knew him then i'm assuming that there had to have been other people that knew him because he wasn't i knew for the, for a fact he wasn't like our age i just i just know he wasn't so there's there is a possibility that she could have known him and the fact that he was walking you know it, it means that he had to have lived nearby or at least was visiting someone nearby to have walked wherever he was walking to more than likely he had to have been a part of that area angel has tried many times to remember more about that interaction what he looked like if he was walking home or somewhere else there are a lot of details to fill in that could help us get some answers if he was the person from the sketch it would make sense that whoever she met at the gas station had the same familiarity as this man did familiar enough that Georgia wanted Angel to step away so they could talk. At 12, you do that for two reasons. One, you're sweet on whoever you're talking to. Or two, you're making plans that your baby sister shouldn't know about because baby sisters might tell mom. So if you're listening guy from the sidewalk and you aren't the man from the sketch, what did you two talk about? Was it the party? Or was it something more benign than that? Whatever it was, it's an important detail that can help shed a little more light on her last movements. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh! O'Reilly Auto Parts. And while we're on the subject of the friend, uh, we saw on Web Sleuths that this is this this friend had a closeness with someone else that lived near that had access to Georgia that she believed to be not, res I mean, I don't know. She never outright said responsible on web sleuths, you know, and granted it could, very, that he was a yeah, it could very well have not even been her. This is just, I mean, it's a website, you know, no, it, it was her. I was able to confirm it was. Her. Okay. So her post on web sleuths then she refers to this guy as as uncle even though they're not related and she confirms that he was like a complete creep and now 
that person is in jail. Based off the web sleuth's post, the friend said that there was this guy who was really, really creepish. Um, and she referred to him as uncle. And that guy who had no relations to her actually lived next door to the friend. It really adds another dynamic to a possibility because Georgia was with that friend that night. Um, And he was a few years later arrested and serving, I believe, a 50-year term for other um, rapes, aggravated, well, rapes. Um, I do believe, was he charged with murder? I don't, I don't know if he was officially charged, but I think he was suspected of murdering two other girls. So when you look at the dynamic of what he is theory to have done, it adds a really strong case to say whether or not this person could have had any responsibility. Surrounding that possibility, you know, when I was like, oh, did he or did he not? I looked at it as what could have happened was Georgia went somewhere, went to this party, came back and ran into this person and something could have happened. But again, nobody knows. Yeah. And there was actually somebody really close to the case who, you know, where we omit their name we omit their name for the out of respect but we know somebody that was fairly close to the case who agreed with her that he was somebody absolutely worth pressing and worth being in contact with and trying to get his information and his alibi Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's so hard not to be able to have this conversation with current officer with the current detective because, <laughs> because that could clear it up real quick you know? exactly and and honestly so I had I've had a few conversations with people and they suspected this person he was like he messed with girls that were underage very pervertish you know just touchy-feely inappropriate and it wasn't until after he was arrested that I guess people came to kind of be like oh that's why I felt that way around him because he really was a creep and then there was someone who mentioned a friend that was a runaway that all of a sudden wasn't there anymore and was living with this person. And when they asked about where she was, they claimed that her parents came and got her and they didn't believe that story. Wait, the guy, the guy that's in jail claimed that her parents came to get her? Correct. Oh, geez. And so it's like, again, you would think, you know, if he was arrested, that certain things would have been vetted and even looking him up is really hard to find 
anything really on him, which is really weird. It really just is like, uh, did he do something? You know, like even down to, like we said, the person that's close to the case questioning this person eventually. And he was acting extremely sketchy. Yeah. Like, it's like, why are you behaving? Like, in a way that only guilty people would behave, you know? So. (laughs) So we can't give too many details on that, but we do know that he uh, suddenly started getting rid of things that that mm-hmm. prior to Georgia going missing there didn't seem to be any t- intention mm-hmm. of getting rid of those things and, and one other thing that was really alarming to me was you know a conversation that I had and it was mentioned that this person when Georgia went missing was really distraught um and really kind of sheltered Georgia's friend and her family you know as in like trying to protect them and even went out further enough to say hey let's let's start searching and was like really diligent in trying to search for Georgia and when I questioned that I was like when did they search because there really wasn't no mention that Georgia was missing until after the fact you know and so it was said that this was like right after she, mm-hmm. her last day she was seen. And so it was just really weird that this person who was already acting sketchy would have, one, been protective of other people and their children when no crime was committed right here, you know? And two, that you would be a part of kind of trying to start a search party, so to speak, for someone that you have no idea where they are. So I, it just seemed like it was too much that was done for something that he shouldn't have known about. But again, it's one of those scenarios where there's a lot of details that line up, but then there's a lot of other scenarios that have details that line up you know and it's like how is it one case can have so many possibilities like that's that's which brings me to my point of saying I feel like they were all connected like all these scenarios are connected just throw them all in a pit and 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 let them tell on each other because there's no way that there's like at least five different scenarios that all seem likely. The friend who walked Georgia to the gas station the night she went missing was originally supposed to interview with us, but after some thought, she changed her mind. We totally understand. She was the last one to see Georgia that had any relevance to the family, and something like that could change you forever. Even though we didn't get her on the phone, she did send Angel an email. It was gut-wrenching to read because there was a lot of pain in her memories. And in reading it, it was hard not to cry, even though the information was stuff we already knew. Although, one detail did stand out, and maybe she doesn't even realize how important it was. Quote, That night, I walked her to the gas station. 
We talked about how she wanted to take care of her family. That's all she wanted. I tried to talk her out of meeting with him. But she insisted that she had to. She told me just to come with. You'll have fun. She didn't really want to go alone. End quote. Her friend didn't go with her that night because it wasn't worth the punishment she'd received for disobeying her mom. And she wanted to make it clear she regrets that every single day. What caught my attention about that quote was that Georgia seemed to know the person she was meeting with, but had a bad feeling about it, and she didn't want to be alone with him. We know that they were supposed to go to a party, so even around other people, something in Georgia's gut was saying not to go by herself. Even though we have all that information, that person doesn't line up with the guy in the sketch. But we know that there are multiple, you know, air quote, guys in the sketch. There are so many people that resemble him, and we know that two of them were close enough that we have heard from other people that those two could be and should be looked into. We've heard four, or was it three or four different accounts all pointing to this guy? Yeah, which is, again, another scenario with so many things that line up and it begs the question, did they or did they not? This person supposedly was close to my family, went to church with us, which I have no recollection of. He was close also to one of my sister's friends. What's even more, other than, even outside of how he looked, being almost spot on to the sketch, he had access to a white car. You have this person who knew my family, knew Georgia, was seen giving her rides, like, regularly. He also had a habit of chilling with underage girls. There's a lot of things that line up to make him somewhat of a credible suspect. Hmm. Mm-hmm. With that other friend... Was she ever, was she ever interviewed back then? So she was interviewed. Um, I don't know exactly when she had got out of juvie and saw the sketch and was like, that person is this person. And so she gave a interview and there was some biasness towards her. She basically said, you know, this is the person this is how I know him. I know he knows Georgia. And not only does it look like him, but he he had access to a white car and he was known to be inappropriate. And they did not document that interview. Mm. And even outside of her, her mom gave an interview and even gave the police pictures of Georgia and that person. And... One of their friends called in to a tip line to say, hey, there was this guy who I remember at one point I went to this girl's house, which was the friend. And I remember Georgia was leaving and she was getting into his car. There was three different occasions within a short amount of time, all saying this person needs to be looked at. 
and there was no notes of this person. We were able to get Nina on the phone to tell us in her words why she thought she knew who it was that picked up Georgia that night. Like I told the Santa Rosa Police Department, and like I said a lot of times because that sketch, the description, I don't know about the age group because I know he was a little bit older, but he didn't look like a really old man. He hung out with a lot of younger girls. He drove, his girlfriend drove a white Honda, four-door white Honda, and he knew Georgia. He knew your guys' family very well. He told us he went to church with your mother, and he gave Georgia a ride home two times from my house in River Park. So when I seen the sketch, when my mother, when other people had seen the sketch who were around my, you know, my area and around... Georgia, who knew Georgia was my friend, they a couple people told me they already felt it was that man who was a firefighter from San Francisco, exactly what two people told me. Oh, your friend. And that's what I felt, just seeing that sketch, um, knowing how he knew Georgia. I knew Georgia was comfortable with him. I knew Georgia was comfortable with him because she was she was fine to get a ride from him from my house to go home. Sometime between 1998 and 2001, Nina had gone to Juvenile Hall. Upon her release, there was some renewed conversation about George's case happening in the media. You know, the whole John Mark Carr thing. And it was a conversation with her child's grandmother that encouraged her to finally seek out the police and give them details on who she believed the man in the white car was. At the time, my my unborn child who was in my tummy, his his grandmother... I talked to her about this because I seen it all over the news. And I told her, I said, you know what? I've never gotten to talk to anybody. I've never, nobody's ever really heard me out. But that sketch looks just like my mom's ex-boyfriend, who's a firefighter from San Francisco. And so she said, really? And I said, yeah, I believe it was him. Georgia knew him. Georgia was fine getting rights from him. And not only that, but... His daughter, or stepdaughter, was dating your guys' brother. It's hard to deny the allegations here. The man had means, opportunity, and if you look at his inappropriate behavior with young girls, you could piece together motive. So what happened next, you ask? Nina gave a police report with that information about her mother's former boyfriend. And despite the fact that two others came forward with that same allegation, that police report was never filed. And Nina thinks she knows why. And from there, I don't remember what month. I don't remember what day. But I know it was in 2001, and it was about in between February and April, because in May I gave birth to my son. And I know it had been a while, like a couple weeks to about a month, before I had given birth to my son in May. Um, that I had spoken to the police officer. And from then, I never heard nothing from nobody. You had said that you felt that they weren't taking you seriously because, uh, for whatever reason, can you elaborate on why you felt that way? Oh, yeah. You want to know why I feel the way I was? Because I was in the foster system, for one, okay? I was in juvenile hall, and I'm a young girl at 16 years old pregnant. So... um, the way the police officer kind of looked at me, he's like, are you sure? 
or are you sure you're not just saying this because you're angry at him? And I remember I looked at the police officer, a chunky Mexican police officer with glasses. Don't remember his name, but even um, my son's grandmother remembers me speaking to them. But I remember him telling me, he said, are you sure you're not just saying this because you're angry because he cheated on your mom? Dismissing a serious lead in regards to a murder investigation as a woman scorned is so tired. Regardless of Nina being pregnant, regardless of her record with the law, and regardless of her mother's relationship, this should have been, at the very least, written down. But there's no record of that interview despite there being a living witness to it having taken place. Until this year, she was not contacted again. Her second interview with police is a thing in and of itself, but that's a different episode. Currently, we're still trying to understand how all these pieces fit together, and if some of these pieces are even for the same puzzle. It goes with what I said at the top of the show. Just when you think you have a grasp of all the moving parts, suddenly you're jetted in a different direction. And if you've been reading the news in Northern California lately, you might already know where I'm going with this. It's interesting to me the timing of that particular interview because it it coincides with a person who has recently been linked to a whole bunch of violent sexual assaults in other states and one possibly taking place or sorry three possibly taking place in Sonoma County and that person was working for Petaluma PD at the time and then went on to work for the sheriff's department so I am sure that there was a lot of we want to not put a spotlight on our, you know, quote unquote, respected citizens. It makes me wonder why he felt so comfortable to be able to do that without worrying whatsoever that he'd receive repercussions. Now seeing everything coming to light that's happening in Sonoma County with all these political figures that have been sheltered from their wrongdoings as far as sexual harassment and and sex trafficking, I'm not surprised that that happened. Right. And on that note, um, do we have any thoughts about Ricky Bostick, the guy that I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, that had worked for Petaluma PD and then went on to work for the sheriff's department right in the, in the window of when, you know, everything happened with Georgia. I think it's disgusting. I think it's disgusting that somebody could wear the uniform and fly under the radar as he did. I I don't understand how that happens. Like, not one incident, not a, oh, she was drinking and I thought it was consensual. These were violent attacks. How do you hide amongst other people in uniform and get away with it for decades? Yeah. Yeah, for decades. I mean, for, yeah, decades. And then the the one that really puts another, like, did he do it or did he not do it? He matches the sketch. He matches the sketch and he was living in Petaluma. I get it that there are, there are so many possibilities. We literally have no suspects. Like, we have persons of interest all over the place, but no suspects. So I get that, like, throwing out a name and being like, that's got to be the guy. That's not what we're doing because there's no, 
there's no evidence. They, the, what do we even have tying him? That's all speculation. It's all speculation. Yeah. With stuff that makes it hard not to speculate, you know? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like, how do you have so many scenarios that fit that you don't know whether or not it's the key? Ricky Bostick is a monster. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing, or a sheep's uniform, I guess. And he added a weird, mangled layer to this onion. With everyone else, even the infamous serial killers, we know how they are or aren't connected to Georgia. With this guy, he's so left field, he probably has nothing to do with it. But like Angel said, it's too coincidental not to look into it. And that's what we're finding again and again. From the house she was staying at, to the family friend, the trips to San Francisco, the guy on the street, and the many men that match the sketch. It's all too coincidental to not look into it. I want to take a second and thank all of you so much for listening to the show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Thursday throughout the season. If you think you know something about Georgia's murder, you have any tips, whether big or small, you can submit those tips to whathappentogeorgialee at gmail.com. That's whathappentogeorgialee, L-E-E, at gmail.com. Or if you prefer to reach out directly to the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department tip line, you can do so at 707-565-2650 or you can submit tips through their website at sonomasheriff.org slash silent dash witness. If you have Facebook, you can follow us on Georgia's page at Justice for Georgia Lee Moses. This is also our Instagram handle, Justice for Georgia Lee Moses. You can find us on Twitter at Solve Her Murder and on YouTube at Justice for Georgia Lee Moses. Since there are so few photos of Georgia still in existence, we always take art submissions at Instagram or at our Gmail account. So if you feel inspired, we love getting new images of Georgia to share. If you want to help get Georgia's story out to the world, you can share this podcast with your network, rate it, review it, or share it on your social media pages with people you think that might be interested or who might know something. And as always, thank you for being a part of Georgia's community. This fight would be really rough without you. All of the information in this podcast has already been shared with the proper authorities. What they choose to do with it is, and always will be, up to them.